Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks. Today we want to talk about some military invasions, but a very specific set of invasions. We're talking two often overlooked invasions, both against Paul's home country, England, and both, well, they're both pretty impressive cock-ups. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about two disastrous plans to try and storm old Blight. You know, to, to be fair, there have been a few of the attempts over the centuries, haven't there, Mike? And I'm glad to say most of them usually failed. But, but to start us off, the one I want to go with is Harold Hadrada's invasion of 1066. Okay, 1066, one of the most famous dates in history. But to be honest, mate, when it comes to the lead-up, I've got to admit, I'm pretty much in the dark. Okay, so the invasion we're talking about isn't William the Conqueror's invasion. We're not talking about the Battle of Hastings. It's completely separate, but it is in that same year, 1066. Okay, so it's not William. So Harold Hadrada. I'm assuming he's a Viking? He is a Viking, Mikey, that's right. And to give you an idea of the background, England by this stage has finally been united, you know, back in the 9th, 10th century by Alfred the Great and his grandson, the other great Anglo-Saxon king of England, Ethelstan. But still looming over England very much are these threatening clouds, one in the shape of the Vikings from across the North Sea and the other in the shape of those Viking offshoots, the Normans, across the English Channel. Now, like we said, it's 1066 and everything hinges on that year because that is the year that marks the death of Edward the Confessor, the last true Anglo-Saxon king of England who rules from 1042 to 1066. Now, Edward, his mum is a woman called Emma and she's not just married Edward's dad, Ethelred, Ethelred the Unready, but also once Ethelred gets bumped off in 1016, she goes on to marry the successor, Edward's nemesis, the guy who bumps Ethelred off the throne, King Canute. Now, I know two things about King Canute. <laughs> One is you've got to be really careful when you spell check his name. <laughs> yes. And the other is um, he's Danish, right? He is Danish. So before he becomes the King of England, he's already the King of Denmark, and he's actually also the King of Norway. So he's the head of of the Viking world, if you like. And then, just to really complicate matters, this Emma, this mum of Edward the Confessor, she is Emma of Normandy, because she's a royal princess in the house of Normandy, which means she's also tied by blood, as his great-aunt, to William, the the future William the Conqueror. Okay, so when you say this is a three-way split, you weren't kidding. Right, so like we said, we're in Anglo-Saxon England, we've had Alfred the Great, we've had Athelstan, you know, England's most successful Anglo-Saxon kings, but the problem is this Ethelstan, he's also the last really successful Anglo-Saxon king because after him, it all becomes a bit of a schmuzzle. And it's out of this mess that's washed up Edward the Confessor's dad, Ethelred. Oh, the unready. The unready, that's right. And as the name suggests, he's not exactly kicking goals. You see, he actually gets bumped off the throne, first of all, by Canute's dad, Sven Forkbeard, in 1013. 
He does manage to regain the throne, but in 1016 he dies and his son Edmund Ironside doesn't even last a year as the new king, Edmund II, because now Canute's coming with his whole massive Viking army and he's decided he's going to stay for good. And like I said, <laughs> Canute doesn't just take the throne, he also takes Ethelred's widow. Emma of Normandy. To be his new wife and queen, exactly. So Canute's now king of England and he reigns from 1016 to 1035. And young Edward, the man who's going to become Edward the Confessor, he's forced to spend 25 years outside of England in exile. Don't tell me, let me guess. Normandy? In Normandy, that's right. All right, now we're already getting complicated enough, so there's no time here, Mikey, to go into Canute turning back the tides and that kind of thing. I'm going to go straight through to Canute's death in 1035. Now, he has two sons, two potential successors, both Vikings, Harthur Canute and Harold Harefoot. But like I said, the pitch is pretty clouded because Canute was, of course, also the king of Denmark and the king of Norway at the same time. So the chances are his legacy, his Viking empire, is going to become a bit of a three-way arm wrestle. So three is the magic number in this episode. Three is the key, Mikey, and not just in the Viking world, but in England too, because here we have entering a third force. So you've got the Viking faction, you've got the Anglo-Saxon kings of Alfred and Athelstan, but alongside this, you've now got another house, the House of Wessex, which is this large Godwin family. They're essentially the most powerful of English noblemen, and they see themselves as holding not just the balance of power, but the ability to become kingmakers. The Godwins? Yes, that's right. Now, first up is the father, the first Earl of Wessex. Now, we don't know his first name for sure, but we do know that upon Canute's death, first he backs Harthur Canute, and then he backs Harold Harefoot. And he also finds time to help defeat another rival claimant, another of the Ethelreds, the unready sons, Alfred Ethelring. But neither Harthur Canute nor Harold Harefoot really cut it, Mikey. Neither of them last very long, so eventually he decides to throw his lot in with Edward, who by this stage is now the last remaining son of old Ethelred and the man who's going to become Edward the Confessor in 1042. And once he's managed to put Edward on the throne, Godwin cements his rise to power by marrying off his daughter Edith to Edward in 1045. And for a while there, it looks like calm and order is going to be restored and England's going to prosper. But, of course, just as you've got this strong Godwin faction, there's also always going to be the anti-Godwin forces. Not least, I'm guessing, from those old Viking factions. That's right, the people who'd supported Canute in the past and his sons, Harold and Harthur Canute. Now, by 1051, this anti-Godwin faction, it manages to persuade Edward to drive the Godwins, drive the House of Wessex into exile but only for them to almost immediately bounce back, raise their own army and force King Edward, Edward the Confessor, to restore them straight back to their positions within the year. That's 1052, and then 1053, matters are further complicated because Earl Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, dies and he is succeeded by his son Harold, Harold Godwinson, who is Edith's brother, and so he'd be Edward the Confessor's brother-in-law? Exactly. But this Harold, the son, he's got ambitions greater than his father. He doesn't just want to be the most powerful nobleman in England. He doesn't want to be just a kingmaker. He wants the throne itself. He sets his sights on becoming the king in his own right. And it seems from this point forward, Mikey, Harold Godwinson 
He's not just the de facto power behind the throne, he's manoeuvring himself for a takeover. And the key to the whole problem that's about to be unleashed is the whole Edward the Confessor thing. I'm guessing he's a bit on the pious side. That's right, Mikey, but he's not just got a reputation of being a religious man, he's almost otherworldly. And this is what really causes the problem. First of all, he has no children. Oh, because otherworldly is actually code for he didn't even sleep with his own wife, the Queen. <laughs> That's right, and we know from that progeny episode, don't we, just how many problems can be caused when medieval kings die without any successor. And sure enough, in 1066, when Edward the Confessor dies, so now England has no obvious heir. So hang on, if I know anything about English history, that's normally a recipe for a civil war. Well, yes, you'd think so, Mikey, but actually at the beginning of that year, 1066, it seems that the English noblemen, rather than dividing up into competing factions, they actually unite. And when Harold Godwinson puts himself forward to be the new king, he's actually elected unopposed. So what you're saying is this Harold Godwinson becomes the famous King Harold we've all heard about. But hang on. Don't we have one too many Harolds right now? I can see trouble coming. That's right. Now we've got two Harolds. OK, the third Harold, Canute's son, he's gone. But as well as Harold Godwinson, King of England, you've also got Harold Hadrada, the King of Norway. And this Harold, he's got real ambition. He knows he's not strong enough to take on Canute's old territory in Denmark, but he does reckon that England's there for the taking. And you've got to remember, Mikey, you know, Alfred the Great may have united the Anglo-Saxons, but the Vikings still very much considered the north of England, the old Dane law territory, to be their sphere of influence, if not their own land itself. So we're now in the summer of 1066, and Harald Hadrada, he gathers his army together and he sails from Norway to England. And from what we can read in all the sources, he's pretty confident. Because you've got to remember Harold Godwinson, yes, he has been made King of England unopposed, but it really, he's hardly got his feet under the table. In King terms, he's barely got the old plates off. Right, it's now September 1066. You've got to remember Hastings, that's not until the next month, October. Harold Hadrada arrives off the north coast of England with a fleet of 300 ships packed with around 11,000 Vikings. But the key to this story is, as well as his own Viking army, he's now further strengthened by forces recruited by Tosted Godwinson, the brother of Harold. Hang on. So Harold, King of England, he's only been on the throne for two minutes, and already his brother, this Tostig, is stabbing him in the back and teaming up with the enemy. The enemy in the shape of the other Harold, Harold Hadrada? Correct. But why? Well, look, we'll never know for sure, but it does seem that he's either thinking, if my brother can be king, why can't I? Or maybe, alternatively, he's thinking, I can be a client king for Harold Hadrada and I can rule on his behalf. And this is all still before William the Conqueror even enters the bloody equation. That's right. William's still in Normandy, biding his time, as the Viking armada, it sails up the River Ouse in the north of England and marches into the great city of York. But like we said, apart from Tostig, all the English noblemen, they're very much behind Harold. And so the Earl of Northumberland, a guy called Morcar, he raises the English forces to do battle with the Viking invaders. But unfortunately, at the Battle of Fulford, a bloody encounter, the English forces are defeated. And now King Harold, Harold Godwinson, has a dilemma. You see, he's still down in London, his brother's in rebellion, and his northern army has been defeated. In fact, there's even rumours at this stage 
that he's tempted to hand back the north of England, back to the Vikings under Hadrada, and to try and consolidate his position in the south. Because as you pointed out, Mikey, there's also this William Duke of Normandy biding his time waiting in the wings. But I'm glad to say, Mikey, young King Harold, he's a real man of action. And he decides he's going to take the core of the Anglo-Saxon army and he's going to march north all the way from London to York, a distance of 185 miles, almost 250 kilometres. And he'll do that in just four days. Now, as you can imagine, Mikey, a whole standing army doing that march in four days, that's not what Harald Hedrada and his Vikings are expecting. In fact, when the English forces arrive on the morning of the 25th of September, the Vikings have no idea what's hit them. They're completely caught by surprise. The English army come over the brow of the hill, charge straight down into the enemy forces, and the battle's begun before many of the Vikings have even had a chance to put their armour on. Now, of course, the Vikings aren't going to give up that easily, and there is some fierce fighting. I mean, this is supposed to be a full invasion, after all. Right. But the Viking king, Harald Hedrada, is soon killed, and not long after, so is the turncoat Tostig. In fact, when the Viking shield war finally breaks, the invading army are all but annihilated. Just to give you an idea of the numbers, Mikey, you know, we talked about that original Viking fleet of 300. Only 24 ships were needed to carry the survivors home. So what you're saying, Paulie, is your man, Harold, Harold Goodwinson, he was actually pretty accomplished when it comes to taking to the battlefield. In fact, yeah, it could be said that he could have even proven to be quite a successful king of England. If it hadn't been for old Slick Willie and his clever idea of letting Hadrada do all the dirty work before cleaning him up at the Battle of Hastings. That's right. By the time the English forces get to Hastings, Mikey, they're exhausted. They've already fought the battle of their lives against the Vikings. So what you're saying is the Norman conquest is all Harold Hadrada's fault? <laughs> yeah, well, in many ways, Mikey, yes. Although, really, I think the howler who we ought to blame is, of course, Tostig. Yeah, that younger brother with the classic younger brother syndrome. <laughs> All right, folks, so we're talking invasions, we're talking cock-ups, and we're talking cock-up invasions, particularly of England and Britain. But now we're going to fast forward seven, eight hundred years, Mikey, right to the end of the 18th century. Yes, mate, have you ever heard of the Battle of Fishguard? I haven't, to be honest, no. Well, actually, Paulie, the Battle of Fishguard in 1797 was the last time foreign troops invaded British soil. Mm. Okay, it gets its start in 1791, just mm-hmm. after the French Revolution. Right. Now, of course, the, the other great powers in Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, Great Britain, Naples, Portugal, Prussia, Spain and Holland, they're all terrified that revolutionary zeal is going to spread into their countries. So they formed the First Coalition. Mm. But they hadn't counted on one little corporal. And, you know, Napoleon goes on the offensive. In fact, so much so that by 1796, Mm. this first coalition, it's in disarray, with only Great Britain standing as the only consequential power in France's way. So your little corporal, he sees his chance. Exactly. But at the same time, he's in a bit of a bind, because he's already sent his best troops and armies rampaging off over the continent. Right. Well, into this quandary walked the Irish revolutionary. Uh, you would have heard of this guy, a politician and, and patriot, Theobald Wolfe Tone. Wolfe Tone, yes. Now, he'd escaped Ireland when things became a little bit too hot for his independence-seeking Irish blood. He arrived in America in 1795. But here's the thing, mate. He was soon disillusioned with the new republic. Mm. He even went as far as to describe George Washington as a high-flying aristocrat. Well, I suppose we said that, didn't we, in the uh, Declaration of Independence episode, because Washington was, of course, at that time, one of the richest men in the world. France, however, with its new revolutionary government and radicalism, appealed to Tone, 
And on his arrival in Paris after he's left America, he's pretty much a constant presence at the French Directory, you know, the sort of revolutionary government for mm. one of the... You know, anyway, and from this, the wheels were set in motion that would lead the French to Fishguard, and the battle that is remembered as well, basically one debacle piled on top of another. Okay. Okay. Now, along with Tone, there's another driving force, the French military leader, General Hoche. Mm. Now, they concocted a three-pronged plan to bring Britain to Hill. A large force would land in Ireland and mm. link up with the Irish independence group known as the Society of United Irishmen. Sure. Two smaller forces would land in Newcastle and Bristol, or maybe Wales. Ah. These working-class towns or maybe Welsh working-class villages, mm. would surely rise up against the yoke of oppression and join forces with their newly landed French Republican friends. Ah. Now, the idea was this uprising, combined with the planned full-on Irish rebellion, would bring the British crown to its knees and ring the death knell for the enemies of the new French Republic. And the French even thought it could even bring about the expiration date on most of Europe's other monarchies. Mm. OK, so the plan gets started. The first force set off for Newcastle in late November 1796. Mm -hmm. In fact, it, it left Dunkirk without incident. Right. Well, that is until they anchored off Newcastle and high autumn seas made the flat-bottom landing craft really unsafe. So much so that the soldiers who were supposed to be leading the invasion force refused to get into the boats <laughs> and demanded the crews turn the small fleet around and head back to France. Ah, But don't worry, there was still Wolf Tone whom along with some 15,000 troops, as well as artillery, some cavalry and General Hoche, he was just there for good measure, they set off for Bantry Bay in Ireland a few days later. Okay. And they immediately ran into the same bad weather that scuppered the invasion of Newcastle. Ah. In fact, this debilitating weather was so arduous that the superstitious French crews started making references to, and you'll know this, Protestant wind. Ah, of course, the infamous storm that had lashed the great Spanish Armada. Exactly, mate. And, and despite howls of protest from the soldiers on board this time, the French sailors actually went nup. They turned their scattered ships around and bid a hasty retreat back to the port of Brest. <laughs> okay, so that's two failed invasions, but you're saying what, third time's a charm? Well, okay, mate. Enter my howler, Colonel William Tate. Mm. Tate was an Irish-American fighting alongside the French. Well, maybe to free his native island, maybe just because he despised the British, or maybe he just caught their revolutionary zeal. So you have to remember, Tate had actually fled America, and this is after getting involved in a decidedly disastrous attempt in 1793 to liberate Florida from its then rulers, the Spanish, mm -hmm. and hand that state to what he regarded to be the more egalitarian French. Mm. Yeah, well, suffice to say that plan never got off the ground. <laughs> and by 1795, the governor of South Carolina had declared Tate a traitor and he was forced to find sanctuary in Paris. Right. Another dodgy thing about Tate, and this is weird, mate, history is actually unable to work out just how old he was okay. when he took part in the Battle of Fishguard. Mm. Look, estimates range everywhere from a midlife crisis sounding 44 to tales of him being a way past his best decrepit 70-year-old. Right. Look, either way, and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of the midlife crisis theory, Tate was probably not the first person you would have thought of if you were contemplating what would go down in history as the last land invasion of Britain. <laughs> All right, folks, so in 1797, Napoleon's on the charge around Europe. We're about to have the last invasion of Britain. But unfortunately, we've also got Mikey's midlife crisis howler, William Tate. 
Mate, as I told you, if Tate was not up to it, neither were his troops. As you said, Napoleon's cutting a sway through Europe, so the cream of the French military were not available to Tate. He had to settle on a, a ragtag bunch that became known as the Legion Noir. Okay. okay it sounds spooky. <laughs> Actually, they're a bunch of really reluctant conscripts, mostly made up from serving or recently released prisoners. <laughs> and also, too, most of them were probably in prison for having royalist sentiments in the past. Ah. And they got their name, Legion Noir, from their uniforms, which, like them, was a pretty scrappy collection of abandoned and plundered uniforms from British and royalist regiments that had been dyed black to give them a cohesive appearance. But here's the thing, mate. The dye didn't actually take. Right. They sort of came out a pretty ugly... Well, let's put it like this. They didn't want to be known as the Légion Mon Enfance. <laughs> now, the Légion Noir was, however, composed of men who spoke pretty much nothing but French, mm. which was a language that, despite his seemingly desperate desire to be a man of international intrigue, William Tate had never actually gotten around to mastering. Ah. So we're now in February 1797. Tate, along with 1,400 troops, set sail from the French port of Camaray, from the deck of the flagship directory. Initially, he was aiming for the British industrial city of Bristol. Mm. But just as with the two other previous invasion fleets, the weather conspired against him. A landing near Bristol was quickly deemed to be way too hazardous. And so Tate settled on Plan B. Which I'm guessing is where Wales comes in. Exactly. So by the 22nd of February, the small French fleet gingerly inched their way into Fishguard Bay. Ass. At which point they came under attack. Well, actually, not really. What happened was that the, uh, there were no cannonballs flying, but they'd just been spotted. And so a cannon shot was, was let off to just let, let the townsfolk know that there were unidentified ships in the harbour. However, with discretion being the better part of valour, um, well, Tate made the tactical decision to turn the boats around and try and find a less dangerous place to make landfall. Okay. This was soon found in a rather picturesque sandy beach, but located near the small village of... Okay, double L... Uh, my f I'm going to apologise to all our Welsh listeners, and please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it's double L-A-N-W-N-D-A, isn't it? Flanda? Flanwunda? Flanwunda. Flanwunda. Now, <clears throat> the French... And please correct me, and I won't be offended. I'm sorry if I've offended you. The French... They, well, they got in their small tenders, and, and by 2 a.m., all of the soldiers, their weapons and ammunition had been transferred to the beach. Mm. At which point, and, and this sounds almost unbelievable, the captains of all the four ships set sail back to France, thus cutting off any chance of an escape. So what did Tate do now? Well, mate, it's not so much a matter of what Tate did next as what his troops did. You see, not so much the battle was underway, mm -hmm. but the looting was most definitely underway. Right. You see, a few weeks before Tate's arrival... A Portuguese ship had, had floundered off the Fishguard coast. And, well, the locals had salvaged the cargo, which was predominantly booze. Okay. Now, let's not forget, the, the members of the Legion Noir, well, up until recently, they'd been in prison. They'd been, you know, deprived. And they immediately got off their faces on as much Portuguese wine and port, <laughs> basically anything alcoholic they could lay their hands on. Right. In fact, they consumed so much booze that instead of invading the town, they sort of stumbled into it to the point where some troops were so inebriated and so cold, they sought shelter in the local church, even going as far as to start a fire with the wooden pews and using a Bible as kindling. Mm. Uh, yeah. Talk about tempting fate. Even worse than their flagrant lack of discipline, along with Tate's inability to gain control of the situation, well, 
there was something else that actually gave the British a chance to mount a counterattack. And here's where fate deals another hand to Tate. There's a guy called Lord Cowdor. And here's the thing. Lord Cowdor was actually 30 miles away with, with a considerable number of troops. I mean, not on the chance that the French would actually invade, but actually there was a funeral planned in the city he was in. Right. And Cowdor wanted to attend with his men, you know, displaying their full military uniforms and all the whole bit. Mm. Word gets to him that there's trouble in Fishguard. And he speeds over to Fishguard and he links up with the limited local forces that are there. But here's the thing. Both sets of British forces had already been beaten to the punch by the wife of a local cobbler. Right. Jemima Nichols, or she has gone down in Welsh history, Jemima Fwa. Mm -hmm. Jemima the Great. Jemima the Great. She was the one, mate, who did the heavy lifting. <laughs> Look, so incensed was she by the French invasion of her beloved town that the 47-year-old armed herself with a pitchfork and single-handedly captured a dozen Frenchmen before securing them and setting out in search of more drunken interlopers that she could fork them with. So things are going pretty pear-shaped for Tate. So he decides the next morning, he's got two options. Should I attack the British or have a meeting and maybe, you know, sue for peace? Mm. You get some sort of honourable outcome. The one thing we do know, though, is the last thing on his mind was an unconditional surrender. That is, until he looks up and sees on the ridge above the town what he perceives to be British reinforcements. And, mm. and I write, these are his own words, with troops of the line to the number of several thousand. Ah. But here's the thing, Paul. There were no such number of British troops for hundreds of kilometres. Right. What he was most probably looking at was hundreds of Welsh women, <laughs> right. possibly just curious onlookers, or maybe even organised by Jemima. I, I do like that particular version of events. See, they're standing on a nearby ridge in their traditional red robes ah. and prominent black felt hats. Yes. Which from a distance, and particularly to the bleary-eyed, hungover, and in many cases still drunk Legion Noir, looked worryingly like fresh, menacing British redcoats. <laughs> right. Believing himself to be vastly outnumbered, Tate hastily surrendered. Look, he's then taken prisoner. And he's eventually sent back to France the following year as part of a prisoner exchange. And then he just, mate, disappears from history. As opposed to Jemima... Your hero. Oh, my hero, mate. She is celebrated in song, in statue, in tapestry. Tapestry? Yeah, mate, I, I think it's kind of great that Britain has two tapestries that acknowledge an invasion from France. It's just that one's far better known than the other. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Polly, we've got our first serving of extra helpings for Season 7. Mm -hmm.